And I'm going to call your attention to the scripture. We are in a study called Because of Bethlehem. We have been talking about some Old Testament prophecies. And this morning we're going to look at Isaiah 61. So if you would turn there in your Bibles with me. We'll, we'll read together the first three verses. Isaiah writes, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. There's always been something that has been in short supply in the family of God. It's not that we're not doing things right. It's not that we're really not trying. It's certainly not that we don't care. It's not like we have ignored God's commandments or been unfaithful or we're teaching heresy or practicing apostasy. No, most of God's people appear to be trying to do what they're supposed to do but at the same time, there is this nagging sense that there's something missing. Something isn't quite right or the way it's supposed to be. No one is really talking all that openly about it. But when we're not busy doing the things for God that we know we ought to do, we intimately know down deep in our soul that something that should be there isn't really there and... The older I seem to get, the clearer it seems to become. We are missing the jubilee of God. That is, we're missing the joy, the laughter, the shalom that God intends for his people to have, for followers of Jesus to experience, even in the midst of life, when life doesn't seem to be going all that well. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem, something absolutely incredible happened. Something world-changing. In fact, it was so incredible that most people in Jesus' day missed it. Perhaps they considered it too good to be true. And sadly, even today, many people still miss it. Perhaps for the very same reason. And then the psalmist says, Psalm 2, fourth verse. The one enthroned in heaven laughed. He laughed. He laughed with a pure joy of knowing his enemies had no claim on his authority. They had no chance to supplant his power, no control over his people, and no case against his anointed one. 
He laughs with the spontaneous and contagious joy of a sovereign leader who is once again setting things right, who is creating all things new. He laughs and is well-pleased, especially with his one and only son. Now, the truth is, we don't expect God to laugh. Some might suggest it is even blasphemous to suggest such a thing. We might expect God to be angry because he sent his one and only son into this world to die for our sin. We might expect God to be fuming about how his one and only son was treated when he actually arrived here on this earth. We might expect God to bring his justice raining down on us because of our injustice to one another. We might expect God to wipe us out with a simple swipe of his hand as he did in Noah's day. We might expect a powerful, intimidating display of his wrath against a world that continues to thumb its nose at him. And we would understand. We wouldn't even blame him. We deserve it. But what we don't expect is for God to laugh, to show joy or jubilation. <laughs> but that's what God did. In fact, that is what the incarnation of Jesus Christ is really all about. You see, in the incarnation, God decides to withhold his judgment and instead to send his grace. And his grace came in the flesh. If we fail to see that, we have missed the entire point of Bethlehem. For thousands of years, people look up to heaven and ask, is there really a God up there? And if there is a God up there, what does he really look like? Is he a monster? Or an elderly grandfather? Does he really care about us? Does he love us? What does he expect from us? Will he ever reveal himself to us? Does he take delight in our pain and in our suffering? What do we need to do to experience his blessing? And then God smiled. And then God laughed. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. He made all things through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten Father, full of grace and truth. Ever wonder why Jesus was so angry so much of the time at the religious leaders? Perhaps it was because the Father had given up an awful lot in order to give them good news, in order to bring them forgiveness and acceptance and grace, and all they did was ignore it and misunderstand it and deliberately disregard it. Toscanini, the great conductor, 
once apologized to his orchestra for having blown up at them by saying, I'm sorry. The trouble is that God keeps telling me this is how the music is supposed to be played and you keep getting in the way, end quote. You see, we deserve the wrath and the judgment of God for our disobedience. But instead, God smiled and God laughed. His laughter and his joy are designed to be contagious. His laughter is a sure sign to us and to this world that he is present with us, that he is in control, and that in fact all things are well. His laughter is an invitation to recognize him in our midst. So Christians ought to laugh a lot because our Father in heaven, the scripture says, laughs. Christians ought to laugh for the very same reason that God who sits on the throne laughs because God is in control because the eternity question has been settled forever because grace abounds because the ultimate victory has been won. The truth is Christians, followers of Jesus are the only people who can really laugh and rejoice and be glad. There are numerous images in the scripture that God uses to talk about his kingdom. But the image of Jubilee, which is spread throughout the scripture as a picture of joy and laughter and shalom and fulfillment, in my estimation, is one of the very best. You see, the scripture says the kingdom of God is a jubilee. It's a term God first introduced to us in Leviticus, the 25th chapter. Moses tells the people of Israel, God's people, that they are to remember the seventh day and to keep it holy. And then Moses tells people that every seventh year, the land is to rest. It's to be a Sabbath so that it can be renewed and rejuvenated and restored. And then Moses says, after seven sevens, there is a 50th year. That year is declared to be the year of Jubilee. And God tells his people that they are to prepare, they are to look forward to, they are to anticipate this Jubilee year. An entire year simply to focus on celebrating God for who he is and what he has done and what he provides. An entire year to experience his blessing and his rule. Moses tells God's people that the Sabbath rest that God prescribed isn't just designed to be a day, one day each week. It involves not only the seventh day each week, it involves the seventh year. It involves, after seven, seven-year periods, a year of jubilee, a year of continuous joy, a year to practice, if you will, eternity. So the year of jubilee, like every Sabbath day, was to be a picture, a vision, a reflection of God's kingdom. Prescribed every 50 years, it is literally a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, something to look forward to in your life. Sadly, we never read, not 
even once. In all of scripture that Israel paused and celebrated a year of jubilee. And I think I can safely say that the reason we don't read about it in the scripture is because it never occurred. As the centuries passed without celebrating, Jubilee became more of a symbol of an ideal, more of a dream, more of an aspiration. And over time, it became associated with the coming of Messiah. Isaiah alludes to that here in this 61st chapter, in these verses that we just read when he says, when Messiah comes, he will declare and usher in the year of the Lord's favor. That is, the year of seven sevenths, the year of completion and fulfillment, the year of jubilee. In fact, in our text, Isaiah says, and you will know Messiah because Messiah will bring jubilee. He will bring the year of God's favor. So throughout his prophecy, Isaiah paints this beautiful, this wonderful picture of what that year of God's favor, that year of jubilee is going to look like. And he identifies for us seven basic signs of Messiah's coming and what jubilee will look like. First, the dead will rise. Literally, they will be alive. He says that in Isaiah 11, that a, a new shoot is going to come out of a dead stump. Second, the blind will see. Again, Isaiah 29 and Isaiah 35. Third, the deaf will hear. Isaiah 29 and 35 again. In that same 35th chapter, he says the lame are going to walk. He says that in the 61st chapter here as well. Fifth is that the lepers, the outcasts, will be cleansed and healed, Isaiah 61. Notice those first five. The focus is on healing the physical ailments so prevalent in Jesus' day. If he were writing it today, I think he would add to blindness and deafness and an inability to walk and leprosy, cancer, AIDS, heart disease, Parkinson's, dementia, the picture of Jubilee is a picture of physical wholeness. And Jesus came to be the healer. Six, the captives will be freed, Isaiah 61. And at first glance, this might raise our anxiety level just a little bit, knowing that these prisoners are going to be, are going to be freed, and all of a sudden we're going to have murderers and rapists and robbers and thieves walking the street again. That doesn't give us any comfort or any peace. I mean, what could possibly be good about that? Nothing. But you see, we have to put it back in context. And in Jesus' day, prisons were primarily for debtors and for people awaiting their trial. Murderers, rapists, thieves, they weren't imprisoned in Jesus' day. They were stoned to death. Ever talk back to your parents? In the Old Testament, that was worthy of stoning. And just so we're on the same page, being stoned in Jesus' day meant having large rocks thrown at you until you died. So this is basically a statement that means our debts are going to be forgiven. They're going to be erased and God's grace will even extend to finances. And then seven, 
the poor will receive good news. When we hear the phrase good news, our minds immediately go to the gospel, and well, they should. But in some translations of this particular text, we hear words like evangelizing. We hear words like preaching the good news. You see, the context here is a little bit different for Isaiah than we might put in there. This is jubilee. The good news for the poor here in this context is that their land, their family inheritance will be returned to them. They will be given a fresh, brand new start. That's what Jubilee is really all about. It's a new beginning. And while they are waiting, they will experience hope and peace. We tend to equate poor with a lack of finances. But that's not just a scriptural understanding. The poor are those people in need of hope. So they are the financially poor, yes, but they are also those who are dealing with issues like depression and grieving lost dreams and lacking good health and having little energy. So the elderly, grandparents, those who had no social status or education, those who were experiencing deep and troubling lives. The poor included people who were suffering from injustice and racism and relational schisms. And Jesus, as we know, spent a lot of his time with the poor just to bring them hope. You see, Jubilee is about hope. Jubilee is about forgiveness. Jubilee is about reconciliation. So it's healing for our marriages and our families and our friendships and our faith communities and our neighborhoods and for entire nations. Jesus once said, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you came and looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Come take up your inheritance. The kingdom that has been prepared for you since before the creation of the world. This is the work of Messiah. This is the favor of God. These are the days of Jubilee. So on the scene comes John the baptizer. He comes to announce the coming one, the Messiah, he comes to announce that Jubilee has come. In Isaiah 40, John is called the voice in the wilderness. Malachi calls him the messenger preparing the way for the coming one. The angel told Zechariah his son John's purpose would be to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. John himself said, I am not the Christ, I am not Messiah, but I am sent ahead of him. You see, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy, full of jubilee when he hears the bridegroom's voice. The joy is mine and it is now complete. Joy. Jubilee. In Matthew 11, in the first six verses, John, we read, has been tossed into prison. Tossed there by Herod. And he's losing hope that Jesus is really Messiah. John's parents have told him he was the one that would announce the coming of Jubilee, the day of the Lord. That is, he would announce Messiah is coming. 
and ultimately proclaim to the world Jesus is Messiah. But now after spending his entire life announcing that Jesus is Messiah, he's not so sure. He thought he was obeying God. And now he's been thrown into prison. It doesn't seem to him like Jesus is Messiah. It doesn't seem like Jubilee is coming. It doesn't seem like there's any joy that's being ushered in. John may also have figured that what, what he has done, what he sacrificed in his life, should put him at the very front of the line for experiencing Jubilee and being able to see the kingdom coming. And so John decides to send two of his disciples to ask Jesus the question, are you the one who is to come? Or should we look for another? We often ask the very same question in different form. If Messiah has come, why did my son have to die in that automobile accident? If Messiah brought jubilee, why is my wife or husband or mother or father dying of cancer? If Jubilee is here, why are thousands dying in missile attacks and on our highways and in floods and fires and volcanoes and hurricanes? So the question on the table is, are you really Messiah? Has Jubilee really come? And if it has, why doesn't it look more like it? or feel more like it, or more of a part of my life. Jesus responds to John's disciples with a Jewish teaching technique called remez. John tells, uh, Jesus tells John's disciples to ask John what he knows about Messiah's coming. What, what do you know about Jubilee? What do you know about that joy and then Jesus responds by mentioning six of those seven signs that we mentioned just a few moments ago. Listen to Matthew 10, the first five verses. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. One, the blind receive their sight. Two, the lame walk. Three, those who have leprosy are cleansed. Four, the deaf hear. Five, the dead are raised. Six, the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Six out of seven. He leaves one out. Do you remember which one? Do you know? It's the most important one for John to hear. The missing one is to provide freedom for captives. Freedom to the captives. Where's John? John's in prison. John's captive. John knows this text from Isaiah. And John understands the message that Jesus is sending to him. Jesus is saying, I am Messiah but you, you will not be set free. Jesus knows the text. Jesus reminds John, and he's reminding every single one of us this morning, something that John forgot. 
It is a dangerous thing to precede Messiah. It is a dangerous thing to follow Messiah. It is a dangerous thing to live for Messiah. And John will ultimately pay the price, as will Jesus, as will all of Jesus' first disciples. You see, in following Jesus, disciples are called to deny themselves, to give up all of their rights, and to commit to following him in obedience wherever it leads, even into prison. Do you love Jesus enough to follow him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength to pay the ultimate price? When following Jesus, we can start in Bethlehem. <laughs> oh, what a cute little baby with such wonderful potential. But if we follow Jesus, it leads to Calvary all the time, without exception. The Bible tells us that he who is least in the kingdom of heaven will be greater than John. And we go, what? Well, you see, John had the opportunity and the privilege to announce that Jesus was coming, that God's kingdom was coming that Jubilee was coming. You and I have the blessing and the opportunity and the privilege of proclaiming Messiah has come. God's kingdom is here. The day of Jubilee has arrived. God has put all things under his feet. Our forgiveness, our redemption, and our eternity are secured. In Luke 4, Jesus returns to his hometown to read scripture in the synagogue. It's his family's time. They went by rotation. It's his family's time to read and reflect. And likely because Jesus was the oldest son in the family, the responsibility was delegated to him. So Jesus stands up to read. And the reading of the day, now please understand these readings are set years and years ahead of time. The reading of that day just so happens to be from Isaiah 61. Jesus reads about God's spirit coming, about his spirit residing on Messiah. He reads about the preaching of the gospel, about the binding up of the brokenhearted, about proclaiming freedom to captives. He reminds them of the year of the Lord's favor, about the year of Jubilee. And when Jesus is finished, he rolls up the scroll and he says to those who are gathered there that morning, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And then Jesus sits down. That's all he says. Whoa, whoa, what did he say? Excuse me? It starts to begin to sink in to the listener what Jesus has just said. Jesus has just declared, this is the year of Jubilee. And everyone in that room that heard Jesus knows that only Messiah can declare a year, year of Jubilee. Jesus has just said, in case you don't understand what the prophet Isaiah is talking about, let me explain it to you. He's talking about me. I'm the one. I am Messiah. 
I am Jubilee. I am the Lord's favor. I'm here. I'm now. I'm real. I'm today. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Excuse me. Are you saying what we think you're saying? And the crowd, as you read the text, quickly becomes irate. Who does he think he is? He is just a carpenter's son. He is just Joseph's boy. And they grab him and they leave him outside of the town toward the cliff. They plan to throw him off for blasphemy. But now understand we're dealing with Messiah. We're dealing with the Son of God. And he could have called down 10,000 angels and everyone would have been there instantly. But the Bible simply says he walks straight at them. He simply walked through the crowd. No one was able to lay a hand on him. No one was able to touch him. Jubilee. Jesus. We, you and I, get to bring in the kingdom with Jesus. It's already here, but it's not yet fully complete. We get to taste this new order of jubilee. We have the promises in our hand, and we get to share them with the world. We are called to live in jubilee. To live like jubilee is already here because it actually already is. You see where Messiah is. Jubilee is. So Jesus invites us to partner on his mission, his adventure, this life-consuming challenge to bring his hope, his peace, his joy, his jubilee to a hurting world that needs healing, to bring hope, to offer life, to demand justice, to extend forgiveness, to offer healing, to proclaim the good news. Tony Campolo tells the story about attending his first black funeral, and he tells it as only Tony can. See, when Tony was 16 years of age, his good friend Clarence died, and Tony went to the funeral. And the pastor talked about the resurrection. He stepped down off the pulpit, and he, and he talked to the family for a few moments. He tried to comfort them. He quoted John 14. He said, Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. Trust in me. Trust in God. Clarence, Clarence has gone to his heavenly mansion. And then he turned around and for the next 20 minutes, he preached to the open casket. He yelled at the corpse, Clarence, Clarence, he yelled with authority. He said, Clarence, there are so many things that we should have said to you that we never got the chance to say. You got away too fast, Clarence. You just got away too fast. Then he went down a litany of all the things that Clarence had done. How he'd loved on other people. And when he finished, he said, that's it, Clarence. There's nothing more to say. And when there's nothing more to say, Clarence, there's only one more thing to say. Good night, Clarence. Good night. And with that, he grabbed the lid of the casket and he slammed it down. Bang! And a shock went through the congregation that was in attendance. As he lifted his head, 
And as he turned to the congregation, you could see the smile on his face. Have a good night, Clarence. Have a good night. Because I know, I know that God is going to give you a great, great morning. And the choir stood and the choir sang, on that great getting up morning, we shall rise, we shall rise. Fare thee well, fare thee well. People got up and started dancing and hugging in the aisles. And for just that brief moment, they had a taste of the joy of the Lord, of jubilee. They were laughing, singing, even dancing in the face of death because they knew what all God's people know, that the sting of death has been replaced by the jubilee of God because of Bethlehem and because of Calvary. For you see, there is good news of great joy for all people. A Savior has been born for you this day in a town called Bethlehem. He is Christ the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, in the midst of our griefs and our sorrows, the midst of the troubles of this world, we are thankful that you are a God of joy, that your joy is contagious, and that in your son, Jesus Christ, we can experience the day, the week, the month, the year of Jubilee. We long for the day when the blind will see, the deaf will hear, the lame will walk, lepers will be healed, captives will be set free, and the poor will receive the good news. We long for the day of your return when the dead will be raised, when your kingdom comes, and we will all be together at home with you. And all God's people said, Amen.